and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we're going to get real sad, everybody. I, I, <laughs> I really like this movie. I don't understand why people have an issue with it. Okay. I don't even know where to start, because I was going to ask you how your week was, but that sentence is wild that you just said, you don't understand people's issues with it? <sighs> I think You the, don't agree with people's issues with it. I think the movie it. is really consistent, and it... Maybe, should I save this opinion for later, or should No, I? it's fine. Go I ahead now. That, Hold up real quick. We're uh, talking about The Mist from 2007. Now right. go. Go I ahead. I think that my problem is that I grew up with horror movies that had more teeth, I think. And I think that often we're seeing, I don't know when it happened, this transition to horror movies that had PG ratings and were safe for all audiences. And It happened when studios were like, we want... All the money, please. Right. And so you, you had sort of like almost family-oriented horror films. So instead of exploring things that were difficult or dangerous or culturally significant and putting them into a different sort of cinematic vocabulary so that you didn't know that you were being preached to, instead of all that, we got these sort of weird films like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street films, which were almost at times really pushing really conservative values in a lot of ways. And so this movie is a callback to just hardcore Witchfinder General and some of the other stuff that was unforgiving, really, in a lot of ways, and made a point really bluntly. So I, I appreciate this movie. I guess I can understand that the, 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 the message of the film is very, very blunt mm-hmm. and can be disturbing to people. And yes, the final moments of the film are rough. very disturbing. They are rough. And they are, the, they are not what happens in the book. No. Right. So, okay, so let's start with the novella, uh-huh. The Mist, originally published uh, as the first 134 pages of the short story collection or novellas collection, Skeleton Crew, in 1985. All right. Sorry, it was first published as the first and longest story in the horror anthology, Dark Forces, in 1980. Okay. And then it was published in Skeleton Crew, slightly edited... And then it was released again as a standalone novella in 2007 to coincide with the release of this movie. The book, here's all I'll say about the ending of the book. There is a shred, one single shred of hope in the end of the book. Right. Now, I have a personal relationship with the novella. Okay. Because this is one of the, this is probably the very first Stephen King I was ever exposed to. Okay. Okay. Uh, and this was my now ex-wife reading it to me as I was assembling a cradle. I've talked about that. I was yeah. painting my son's room, my future son's room. I'm putting together a cradle. I'm doing all this other stuff, and she's just reading to me. It's 1999? Yeah, about. Yeah. And so Salem's Lot was a part of that, and Carrie was a part of that, although I wound up reading Carrie on my own. And uh, But The Mist was the very first thing, and she thought I would like it because... It's Stephen King basically speaking directly to me, mm-hmm. to a monster kid, like mm-hmm. the second generation of monster kids. He references Willis O'Brien, who is Ray Harryhausen's mentor in the man mm-hmm. who animated King Kong. He references John Fulton, who did The Parting of the Red Sea in the 50s Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. He references King Ghidra from mm-hmm. the Toho monster movies. So all of these sort of Easter eggs for people. He, he was setting it up almost as if he was casting it so that you, if you were in the know, you would get exactly you know what, what he's saying. Visually, he, yes. is going. You for. were picking up what he was right. putting down. Exactly. Now. To a degree that I haven't had with an author before or since, even including him. 
that I just got, oh, that's visually, this is what he this wants you to see. This is what he wants you to see. Okay. And do they do that in the movie? Do they stick There's a lot of, well, they had to change it, obviously. Right. Um, but there's a lot of visual references to things, including some really neat ones that I'll bring up later. Okay. And I would have guessed that you would not have liked this one uh-huh. because of the uh, portrayal of a religious zealot. Right. And basically, she she builds a cult around herself. Right. And she is a Christian woman. She That's... declares herself a Christian she... woman. Which is interesting. What, what she believes and 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 how she because comes across. What I've noticed is it's very interesting about listening to it this time around and paying attention to that element specifically because people are always surprised. Is that she uh, never mentions Jesus once? As a matter of fact, she she's com- Jewish. <laughs> no, she completely rejects the New Testament. No, she goes. Yes, she's very old. So she's she wants about the Old Testament. Right. So. I listen to that now. I'm going. That, that was an interesting choice. We're just going with somebody who's taking all the life out of well, because I think Christianity. He, Stephen King, is the he I'm referring to mm-hmm. here. He is a Christian man, right? Uh, understands the difference between what the Old Testament right. says and what the New Testament says. Yeah, and could not hang Christian on this woman, right? But could hang Bible on this right. woman. Right, and so that is what he and does. I think I, I'm not sure if we discussed it in the podcast. I mentioned Sister Emily, the elderly woman who sat in the back of our church uh, when I was a younger man. She was this kind of very sour, pruny old woman who took care of her Rude. her brother. And I am also a pruny old woman, so watch it. <laughs> but she she just found a reason to complain about any moment. If you were having a happy time, if everyone was singing a happy hymn. She would stand up and testify how she felt it was offensive to God. There was always something desperately wrong. She never did anything except go to church. And she would go to different churches so she could be occupied every night of the week. And she would tell us stories like, for instance, that she used to love baseball games until she saw people swearing and fighting and and chewing tobacco. So that, that was wrong. She used to love I going to dances. I don't understand how you right. can and that was my live favorite. in a faith and mm-hmm. hate the faithful. And then she, so much. Yeah. Or just human beings She in went general. to a dance. She saw other people dancing. She loved to do that when she was young. And one day, she saw Satan appear to her on the dance floor and uh, point his finger at her and scold her for being amongst the sinners. So she did literally nothing except listen to religious radio broadcasts and go to church. She sounds awesome. But this is why everyone... <laughs> but I think, you're like, I, I know who this woman everyone is. Everyone in, in the church who's grown up in it has knows a version of Sister Emily or a version of Mother Carmody. Right. She's a familiar figure to all of us. There are some people who love the church because they love it, and some people who love it because they're terrified of hell. They're t- either terrified of hell or they're terrified of everything else. My guess is that something very bad happened to Carmody at some point. Like... Similar to a, an ex-co-worker of ours mm-hmm. who was a woman who lived, I'm not going to call her out, but she lived alone. Mm-hmm. She was a very kind woman, but she was um, you know, odd in her right. ways. And then we found out like 30 years earlier, like her, the love of her life and her sister mm-hmm. had gone off together. Yeah. And she just never recovered as a person. Like she yeah. was, and she was a very faithful person as well. She right. had that that aspect to her. Um, but just you know, something really monumental happened with. Um, in, in this case, it was love and family. Right. Um, 
you know, in Carmody's case, it could be something violent that happened to her when she was younger or something that she just doesn't she come back from recovered. whole. Well, also yeah. the idea is, and they lay it down several times in the film, that she is not quite right to start with. Right. Yes, if you know her around, like, don't mind, pay mm-hmm. her much mind. This is not, you know, yeah. we, we know how to... We know Mother Carmody. Deal with her. So people... And maybe we should start with yes. the, the, let's, the film. Let's start with right. the film. The plot. The plot synopsis. It's rather simple, too. There's not a There's not a lot of... Yo, yeah. Let me see if I can get a one sentence. Right. I haven't done a one sentence in a while. Let me see if I can get a one sentence thing. All right. Explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. A freak storm unleashes a species of bloodthirsty creatures on a small town where a small band of citizens hole up in a supermarket and fight for their lives. Now, I don't love the way that's worded, but a a species of bloodthirsty creatures is inaccurate as to what a species is. Yes, exactly. Um, Uh, It's a a whole, yes, it is a whole ecosystem. It's a bunch of, it's a food chain. Mm. Like, it's a bunch of stuff. Okay. We start... With paintings. I always love the beginning of this uh-huh. because it's a beautiful art. Who is it? Ju- Drew Struzman, who was a wonderful poster artist. He actually has a personal connection to us. He, uh, One of our dear friends, it, this is his idol, another one of our dear friends, his son trained with him making movie posters. And so if you're looking particularly in the 80s, I would imagine Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and if you, I'm as part of his appreciation group on Facebook, or the Goonies, the very famous and very complicated, when you think about it, poster for the Goonies with all the characters uh, clinging to a stalagmite, I think it is. Struzan. Struzan, I'm yes, sorry. Yes, that's okay. I'm just, I want to get it right. Um, He's done over 150 movie posters, including Shawshank. Right. Did he do this one? Well, here's an interesting, <laughs> the opening scene is our character, what's his name? His name is David Drayton. David Drayton Painting. Who is an artist. He um, is basically, mm-hmm. he is a, a living embodiment of right. this artist. It, he is painting a movie poster. Now, for the gunslinger, actually. The neat thing is he's painting the gunslinger, and the background is the painting for the thing. Yes. John Carpenter's the thing. And then to the left of that is the painting for the poster, a poster art for Pan's Labyrinth, which ultimately I don't think was used. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Which had opened just the year before. Yeah, and he's done. I wish I could find like an actual. His stuff for the. List. He did a lot of the. He did like. The Spielberg films, he did a lot of those. And the, the, the Star Wars prequel uh-huh. trilogy, he did those. And then he did, yeah, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was the last thing that he did. Mm-hmm. But he did the Hellboy stuff, so he was, he's worked a lot with right. Guillermo, it sounds like. Uh, and then there's a documentary, Man Behind the Poster, which, which I, I saw. want to see. It's a lovely film. documentary. They should have that on Shudder. Hey, Shudder. They had it on Netflix when I saw it. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to look for that because I enjoy that. Uh, oh, he did. He came out of retirement. He keeps coming out of retirement. Right. <laughs> he did it uh, to design posters for The Bat Kid Begins, the Wish Heard Around the World. Remember that uh-huh. thing? And then he did The Force Awakens. And he did the How to Train Your Dragon. When the third one was coming out, he came out and did one for each of them, uh-huh. which is awesome. I love those movies so much. So that is... I would love to have seen him do a poster for Ready Player One. And he does. Oh, he uses a lot of stuff. So he uses... He sketches uh-huh. uh, on gessoed board. 
then he airbrushes acrylic paint and then co does colored pencils yeah. for the details. Well, if you see his paintings... So you're seeing, when he's painting in this, technique. it looks like oil that he's uh -huh. using, um, that Thomas Jane's character right. is using, but that is not what he does. Well, you also see in the opening scene that he's doing like the final layer of something. It's not like he's beginning the process. He did the poster artwork for the 1982 remake of The Thing, the yeah, one that's, that's on the, the wall. Background, yeah. He did it overnight. Wow. He received that assignment less than a day before the finished poster was needed. That's incredible. He's a genius. Yeah. Get on it. Struzman. Nope, Struzan. I'm going to ruin it. D-R-E-W-S-T-R-U-Z-A-N. Struzan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... His avatar in this is David Durayton. He uh, finishes up painting what looks like the Gunslinger from the Gunslinger books, the Stephen King world. And he goes to a big picture window and looks out and sees a storm a-coming. And we see him and his family gathering up supplies and they go down into their basement. And then when they come out the next morning, there is a tree that has come through said picture window. Mm -hmm. And he's and going said picture. And said picture, yes. The, yes. the painting is destroyed. He says, he just, he's holding it and the frame is all broken. And she says, well, can you, you know, can you salvage it? And he's mm -hmm. like, no, no way. I'm going to have to call when the phones are back up to see if I can get an extension. And she's like, well, they'll have to give you an extension. Right. And he goes, nah, they can mock up a Photoshop thing in like an hour and a half. Which sounds very much like the complaint that Drew Struzan has about modern posters. Which, yeah, with two big heads, right. I think is what he said. And I'm like, oh, that's real. <laughs> that is every yeah. fucking Photoshop poster. And uh, we, we, we find out that he and his neighbor have a litigious past uh we go out we he goes out to see uh the boat their boathouse has been crushed by a dead tree that they had been asking their neighbor repeatedly to have removed mm -hmm. who he did not he did not do it and then we go meet the neighbor he's just gonna get insurance information and the neighbor is played by andre brower this is mm -hmm. the first thing i had seen andre brower in Stephen King-wise, but of course he was in that Salem's Lot remake right. recently, uh, which I had not seen before I saw The Mist. So, he is openly hostile right off the fucking bat. Mm -hmm. uh, we find out later he's a big-time lawyer. He's in a real bad mood because then we see that his 1980 uh, Mercedes convertible has been very smooshed by another yeah. tree. Uh, and he says he will go ahead and get his insurance information and asks for a ride into town because his car is not going to run. So uh, they all end up traveling to the store. And by they all, I mean David and his son, Billy, and their neighbor, whose name is Brent Norton. I don't know. They call him Brent in this, but that name and that character don't. Mm. It's just Andre Brower. It's just angry Andre Brower. He's so mad. He's so mad in this movie. Uh, before they go, they notice a mist rolling in off of the uh, lake. And then on the way into the store, they notice a lot of military activity coming mm -hmm. from the base or going to the base. I, I leaving the base itself. The base is the center of where all this 
fog is rolling in. It's a mountain above the lake. Okay. And it's almost as if they're mobilizing and getting stuff from the town. Okay. Um, and splitting up in different directions at the time that the mist hits. Well, ex- except, yeah, maybe that might be true. But when they're driving on the road, they pass a convoy, like right. a big convoy, going a- away from where the, ta- the, the mm. town. It's just, it's a weird geography thing that I was confused about, but that's fine. So in, they get to the grocery store. In the store, there's some soldiers, as you say. They're uh, bitching and complaining because their leave was up, but it got canceled. As they're doing some shopping, it was a, it's a, I want to bring attention to a really interesting little piece mm. right at the beginning. So uh, David said he's going to, I don't remember what he said he was going to do, but he said, you go on with uh, Mr. Norton. Mm-hmm. Or no, he says he's going to go do something. Billy says, can I go with Mr. Norton to the store? Mm-hmm. At which point he says, and Mr. Norton's fine with this. As long as you hold his hand, and then Mr. Norton takes David's shopping list, and when we see when they meet up later in the store, he is shopping for David. Okay. And I was like, I would never ask somebody to do, you know, to mm-hmm. to get my, to take my list, and when I know that they have shopping to do, like it just seems so weird because they're so contentious and then he's like oh yeah i'll pick up your groceries for you no problem and i was like this is weird like is this how small towns work like even when you're pissed off small towns towns work because they saw it as an emergency and they're having that's it it's just there's conciliatory steps being made yes like when uh david sees the car he's really genuinely hurt because he He's, he's like, I know you love that cool car. Stuff. He's that a guy, car guy. was beautiful, right. and I am very sorry that that happened. That mm-hmm. sucks. Like, yeah. legit, like, legitimately, I am sorry. And, and I think he does hear that. Yeah. Um, and that's when he says, I'll dig and up the Also, I think company. it was very sweet that he trusted him with his son going, That was, that hey, was yeah. it, too. Where I, he was like, I know that you love your son, and you're going to be okay with mm-hmm. me watching him. Um, so it felt like this was an attempt to breach a relationship. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, that was really, really interesting. So he meets up and he says, uh, he gets, you know, his wife's hand handwriting gets canceled. Now his wife is back at the, Stephanie, mm-hmm. back at the house, uh, waiting for them, cleaning up probably. Right. And uh, there's a dig at her handwriting. She could make a fortune as a doctor in the city, I think mm-hmm. is what she says. And he goes... Yeah, I know it's rough. I'll take that. You grab a cart. I'll meet you at the checkout, which is, yeah, that makes mm. more sense to me. And so they split up. And then three soldiers come in. No, no, no. And then the defense side, you hear the, si- the civil defense mm. siren, which I don't know if we have anything like that. We have the we used radioactive to, when we lived in Richmond, siren. We had every Wednesday in the yeah. middle of the afternoon, because Wednesday used to be my day off in the middle yeah, of the yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would run the sirens. Yeah, but what is that? It's meant to because what will happen are two there things. Was, it was on Tuesdays in Berkeley. Mm. Yeah, it's it's um, and it's always scary. It doesn't not scare me. Right. I think because I still have associations. There'll be a generation who has no idea what that means. Oh yeah, um, you don't have to get under your desk. It's right. <laughs> but what we used to there was that, and there was also the the uh, signal that used to be broadcast on television. That was like when they get, ran the check. This and... really irritating whine. Yes. And yes. they would clear regular broadcast television, and then there would be a set of instructions afterwards telling you this is what's going on. Okay, and gotcha. they had to. They used to read it to you because there was a 
higher level of illiteracy back in the day. Well, not just a higher level of illiteracy, but if I can't, mm. uh, if I can't see. Right, that's true too. Like, if this is important, we mm-hmm. want to get it to you visually and auditorily. Like, right. although presumably, if you can't see, you would be watching television. But because I I don't know how it worked on the radio, I was never there on the radio for it. But on television, yes, it would get interrupt. You'd be watching a program, yeah. In the middle of it, there'd be just this really high pitched, weird, really horrible bleeding noise, followed by um, instructions. I There's should introduce you to. There is a whole caption level mm-hmm. for the visually impaired. That didn't happen till later. I remember oh, when that okay. came in. All right, it was a big deal. You know, visually impaired mm-hmm. people definitely right. watch well, TV was, because there are things you can't get. There was a narrative any other way. I remember when the second audio channels were first used when they were mm-hmm. experimental, mm-hmm. and uh, I was really fascinated. Back when Entertainment Tonight was a news program, or a news entertainment program, just making all the money, right? And Mary Hart and her very short skirts. You go with your knees. Um. So the siren sounds and an injured man runs into the store screaming about something in the mist, at which point basically the mist goes fuck and yeah. is at it the store. It rolls into town very quickly. And there are, is an, like an earthquake. Like a, yeah, they like think the, it's an earthquake. Yeah. So then they're trapped in there basically. And it's what happens when they're trapped in there. And we're there, what, one, two days? Three days, maybe? Um, yeah, I think three days at the most. So they go there. It's pretty early in the morning, I right. think, when they get there. And uh, they try and run the generator in the back, and it gets all smoked up, which means mm-hmm. that there's something in the exhaust pipe. Right. And so they go back in the back, and they is Drayton for no... I don't know why he's in the middle of well I mean he's our protagonist he has to be in the middle of it he can't just well, be a dude in the store he not went in into the, the stock room at one point and heard and the presence of something very large outside rolling against the rolling gate yes around uh, yes there's so like a his second visit metal. is to try to discourage people from going out there because he's not frightened right what had happened earlier there's another character uh, soon after the the mist rolls in there's another character Dan Miller who comes running into the grocery store covered right. in blood. So, Say, yelling right, about something, something in the mist. Yeah. So when Drayton hears this thing prowling around outside, he He's gets like, very oh, frightened. There's, uh, there really something is something in the mist. Because they don't mist. know at this point whether or not um, Dan Miller has just fallen and stumbled and hurt himself. That's true. Oh, right at the beginning, they're like, well, nobody go out there. Mm-hmm. right? And Carol, one Carol. Carol from The Walking Dead... Her name is not Carol in this. We actually don't know her name, but it's Carol from The Walking Dead. It's like, I can't stay. Like, I left my two little children, like eight and younger, at home. I said I'd be right back. Sometimes she forgets to watch the baby. I got to go. Mm-hmm. Somebody take me back. Somebody, you know, go with me. And nobody does. And you think that that's the sort of the moral decision mm-hmm. that everybody has made. Right then and there, that's where everybody's die is cast. I believe so. I think that the moral lesson of the film is really, because as we learn later, she survives all this hellscape with her kids. With her kids. And so had somebody, when she's appealing to them on every level, including, will somebody please walk a lady home? Yeah. 
And it's, it's, that's actually heartbreaking to me. Yeah. That's terribly sad. Now, mind you, she later on kills children, does things on a different TV well, show. Well, that's a different thing. That's um, not but uh, as this character, it's heartbreaking because I've had a, a, a mother in her dotage who's trying to be responsible and, you know, screws things up. So the, the terror of the unknown was greater than, you know, or the yes. terror of the certainty that the her kids were in danger. The certainty that something bad was going to happen mm-hmm. was greater than the terror of the unknown. And, and if, that pull of, I have to go to my children. Like, there's no right. other answer but about it. That if somebody had, whoever had walked her home, would have survived Would have survived. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And not even survived, been rescued in spectacular fashion, as we later yes, see. Yes, well, yes. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, to me, that's So she goes, and we don't see her again until point. the very the end. Very like, end. the literal, like, last minute of the, right. of the, of the movie. Uh, so they've got to clear the generator mm-hmm. to try and get lights and, and power, right? Back in, right. back up. Um, and they go in the back and he, it's, uh, the kid beggar Norm, who... Melissa McBride, by the way. Yes, Melissa McBride is Carol. I should right. remember her, her name. name. Yeah. And, and we should say David Drayton, played by Thomas Jane. A man who likes to be barefoot in his real life. That's a piece of information that I don't know why I have in my head, but here we are. Chris Owen plays Norm, who's the bag boy. Not for long. He's very familiar to me. He is this gawky, redheaded kid, and he is like, well, I'll go outside and clear whatever it is. And back there with him at the same time is Toby. Nope. His name is Ollie in the movie. His name is Toby in real life. It's Toby Jones before he played... Truman Capote? Yeah, that one. Yeah. He has a very, he has a flawless American accent in this. I forgot that he's British. I, I would not have ever guessed until He I almost never has an accent when I see mm-hmm. him. He's almost always sounds just like this. And I believe also we have Jim back there, who is mm-hmm. William Sadler, all of Frank Darabont's movies. Oh, mm-hmm. that's the other thing. This movie is directed by Frank Darabont, previously right. of The Green Mile and The Shawshank Redemption uh, William Sadler, also previously of The Green right. Mile and The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, also, Jeffrey DeMunn was in at least one, but Mile. not both of them. I, I don't, don't think he was in The Shawshank Redemption, no. but he was certainly in The Green so Mile. So he's in this as well. And so we've got... One of uh, my favorite actors. You know, we also have in the store uh, Francis Sternhagen. Mm-hmm. Who, who was, was in uh, Golden Years, right? Oh, shit, yes. Yeah. And uh, Misery. Mm-hmm. She played... His wife. Uh, I don't like thinking. That <laughs> one bothers me. I don't like thinking of uh, him suffering. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of repeat uh, performers here on mm-hmm. this one. Yeah, Melissa McBride's uh, credit is mm-hmm. woman with kids at home. <laughs> she doesn't even have a name. Single mom? So the four, yes, right. So the four of these guys go in the back, three of them thinking they're going to clear out the the duct or the vent or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and one of them begging them not to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a little, you think you're too good for all of this. This is an element that keeps popping up in this film, is that there's the people who've been in this town for generations. Yes. In this isolated burg, and this is very much like... Uh, Dolores Claiborne, yes. or one of these, uh, or Storm of the Century. You're not one of us, right? There's them, and then there's people from the outside who think they're too good for you, us, to, don't they? To, yes, right. Um, but and then there's the people from the outside who are against each other. Like, mm-hmm. so Andre Brower is a summer person and mm-hmm. a weekend person, right? He lives right. in the city, he works in the city, but they all like him. They're like, he's powerful out there, and he mm-hmm. brings his money and spends it here, and it's fine and it's good. 
uh, David Drayton appears to live there full time. Right. So he is a member of the community, but they still think that he is not a member of the community. Because he knows people from Hollywood. Maybe that's it. Maybe you know your Hollywood people, don't you're you? You're high and mighty, and what you, got you know, there. if you've got some money, and right. so you look down on us, which we don't see any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. But he does keep telling them, trying to keep trying to tell them what to do, and they do not like that. William right. Sadler does not like that. He is real mouthy in this. Of all the people who need to be told what to do, William Sadler is that man. Almost always, right. almost every character he plays, mm-hmm. uh, and. They end up going against what he wanted to do, and they let Norm go out, and, oh, it's scary, and, oh, and then, oh, what's that? Tentacle. <gasps> and it grabs him, and it pulls him out, and then he dies. He dies, but they cut off a piece of the tentacle, and it's laying there on the ground, and everything is closed, at which point David beats the shit out of William Sadler and says, or, whose name is Jim in this, because of course it is, uh, who's like, uh, this is fucking on you. I told you not to do that. His death is on you. Uh, and they have a sort of powwow about, well, we don't like that term. They have a little group <laughs> meeting about the like, who to tell and how to tell and what to tell because they don't want to panic anybody, but they want people to understand what the fuck is going on. Mm. So they bring over like the manager of the store. I love that part because Ollie is at this point cracked open a beer. Ollie works there. Toby Jones's character is a bag boy or a manager mm-hmm. or something. He works there. He is in his apron and his short shirt sleeves and he is drinking a Budweiser and they mm-hmm. bring over the manager and he's like, do you want me to fire you? And Ollie is like, fuck off. We have <laughs> like, so much more to worry about. You don't know what about. the fuck I just saw. Mm-hmm. I need a goddamn beer. And I'm like, yeah, he does. Now, mind you, we should mention that the tentacles in this case are pretty hideous. They are. They open a on, purple color. Uh, well, I they can't. un. They like. So say you're looking at a tentacle. Now, how often do you hear that? Say you're looking, say at, you're a looking at a tentacle. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that the bottom of the tentacle opens up and right. has a bunch of spines. Right. Very similar, I think, in the opening to the monsters in Dreamcatcher. Right. Right? That mm-hmm. sort of sideways opening. And mm-hmm. um, and then, yeah, they, they basically shred mm-hmm. Norm, right? It's done both in CG and practical. There yeah. are definitely practical effects in this movie, mm-hmm. which is awesome. It's a good balance of them both so that it's convincing. It's fairly convincing when things go. That there's very little of it that didn't work for me. And considering when the film was made and the fact that it did not have an enormous budget. No. They were, uh, it's... It really is. The, the effects are really well realized for the effects-heavy picture in particular. Yes, they are. And but and everything seems to have weight and physics, mm-hmm. which right. I like. So they bring the, the manager over, and then they want uh, Brent, uh, the lawyer neighbor, mm-hmm. to come over. And because they're like, oh, I think they bring the manager over first, and they show him the tentacle. He pokes it, and it sort of... Hisses, smokes, and then melts a, into at this point the, nothing. The, the rolling gate has closed on top of it, and it was yes. cut off with an axe, the tip of it. Yes. So when the manager comes up and touches it, it has some sort of involuntary nerve reaction. Yeah. Because so it spasms. There's nothing particularly complex or sophisticated about the animals in the fog. No. They're pretty brutal and simple. Something the ones that we see. Right, the ones that we see. Uh, the, the most complicated one, I think, is the one at the end, but that's a, another thing. Yeah. 
So this one has a sort of involuntary movement, like you get off of a, a, a limb that's been severed. Exactly. Yes. And then it melts. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem, because now we can't show it to anybody else. There's no else. evidence to show anybody else. Uh, and uh, Brent Norton basically is like, it's not fucking funny. You're trying to like take the piss. You're trying mm -hmm. to make a fool out of me in front of everybody, which is a wild thing to jump to. Like, we are all trapped here right now. Why would we be making jokes at your expense and I think he's there's some race uh, issues mm -hmm. rolled up into his accusations he is the only black man that we see in this movie I think I think there's one no I one the of the military guys is black one of the military guys is black there's a black man that when he when uh, the character's name again uh, Andre Brower's character Brett Norton when he just doesn't you're right I know that it. name doesn't stick well I mean it, he originally wasn't an African American character in the book he is just an old white guy Brent Norton at one point when he peels away and tries to establish his group of rational thinking yeah. people yes uh, there is another black man and I made the joke oh great he took the other black man and, and man with him that's right um, well, I mean, uh, to be fair, right. if I was them, I'd fucking probably... Well, that, I think that made perfect sense that yeah. he would... Because what the opinion that Brent has is that everyone here is playing him for a sucker. But that is really consistent with his character because he seems to believe that everyone is out to get him. Oh, yes. you're out to make a fool of me. You're yes. out to... Right. At this point, the there's a faction start mm -hmm. forming. And one of the factions is... Uh, Mother Carmody, Carmody mm -hmm. played by Marsha Gay Harden. I Who, think this might have been the first time I ever saw her. Right. This is the performance that I think she should get the Academy or should have gotten the Academy Award for. This is an amazing performance. She is a in the in in the novella thing. She's described as an elderly townswoman. She mm -hmm. is not elderly. No. She's younger than I am right now, and she's just basically like, "This is Armageddon uh, at night." Mm -hmm. Something's gonna come, and where something someone else is gonna die because right. it wants blood. Those are very safe predictions. Yes, I'm like, yeah. These are this is like mm -hmm. the the most basic of mind reading techniques, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's probably what's gonna happen. Then there is the group of logic, and that is sort of Brent's group, uh, sort of just. Mm -hmm. trying to come up with a plan to get out of there. And then there's the group of people that David is with, David and Ollie, and what's her name in this? Amanda, played by... The very lovely Lori Taylor, right? Lori Holden. Holden. I'm sorry, Lori Holden. I'm thinking of her character. Lori Holden. Uh, Amanda Dunfrey. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a new teacher. She's very pretty. And in the book, she and David hook up real quick. But in the movie, they do not. They do not. There's a... I got for Stephanie... My yeah. ex-wife, who um, I got her an audio edition of The Mist that was done with uh, back when they were pioneering different audio takes for or techniques for audiobooks. And this one supposedly had 3D sound. I'm not sure exactly what that meant. Well, that means you've definitely got to use headphones. Right. But um, I listened to it at work, and it was embarrassing because they actually have an audio depiction of them doing that. Right, so all, for a couple of seconds it sounds like you're listening to soft porn, just a lot of ooing and aahing. I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm at work. Let me, let me. Inappropriate. There was NSFW. lots of screaming and a couple of seconds of moaning and then more screaming. They are fortifying, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. 
they are putting up like dog food bags and things mm-hmm. up against the windows because Ollie is like, well, what happens when they get in? And they're like, well, we close the back door. Right. And Ollie's like, the front of this store is plate glass. Like, it's a grocery store. And like every grocery store, the whole fucking front of it, mm-hmm. I don't know why we decided this was a good idea, but it's definitely the way that grocery stores are built, is glass. Yeah. Uh, so they start building up a wall, basically, mm-hmm. is what they do. And starting at dusk, so now they've been there a whole day, they hear these things landing on the windows. And they look out, and they are bugs. Yes, and they, they are, are the too. size of a cat, basically. They are, if Ziggy turned into a cockroach with wings, that's how big they are. So... They bring up the light to look at these things, cause they, and they have some bioluminescence to them. They don't look like anything. They don't look like just like a bug got bigger. They are different than the bugs that we have. Um, and then, as more and more bugs congregate on the glass, then birds or a close proximity of birds start going after them to eat now, them. birds, you say bird... They're it's more like... Ter- they're like Closer to like a pterodactyl, though it has four wings. Yes. And its head, oddly, something that occurs to me that's it actually like very a hatchet. weird. Also looks like a flamingo with that strange yes. kind of hooked beak. So it takes something that would be normally kind of comical, like a, a pelican or a flamingo, and turns it into this really nasty... Yeah. There's a, a visual effect here where the creatures come plunging through the windows, these pterodactyl creatures... And King describes it as a dinosaur bird in the story. Mm. Um, comes plunging through the windows, and it grabs a man by the back of his neck. Yeah. And in a scene that is memorable for its grotesqueness, pulls the sheet of muscle away that attaches yes. a person's neck to it. There's some really graphic violence Which in very this. much looks like when you see mm. a raptor right. eating. Yeah. Because uh, that is, they just pull the strands of tissue out mm-hmm. of out of out of the body that they're <laughs> yeah um so uh two people end up dying inside the store and another is very very badly burned before this happens as they're building the wall one of the bikers um that's there is like uh how about i go out to this dude's truck who says he's got a shotgun and go grab the shotgun. I'll, I'll go out there. Mm-hmm. The order of these things is weird. Uh, because at the same time, Brent and his little group is like, we're going to go find a car and we're going to go get help. That's what we're going to do. And everybody's like, mm, it doesn't seem like a good idea to go out there. This is still day one. This is before they've broken in. Okay. And the biker was like, well, and they're like, well, can you at least take this rope so we know that you got 300 feet or whatever, tied around your waist, and we know you got 300 feet. And uh, the biker's like, I'll do that. And they're like, you're going to toss in with him? And he goes, no, 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 no. But I think a shotgun might be good to have. I saw where this dude parked. I can go grab it, and I'll, I'll be right back. So he ties the thing around his waist, and then they go out into the mist. Uh, and we hear Brent's group screaming, mm-hmm. and then the rope starts getting pulled super fast, mm-hmm. and then 
pulled up into the air, so it looks like he's flying a kite. The people mm. who are holding it yeah. look like they're flying a kite. It's like really well done because you're just like, what is happening on the other end of that rope? And then they get control back and start pulling it back in, and like it's blood. I don't know how it makes sense that there was blood on that much of it. Well, what we see later on is when they're able to draw the rope back on, it's only the lower half of this man's body. Right. So but imagine... it's blood for like 100 yards right. like or 100 feet that they're pulling it. Um, and they then, yeah, and it then like they a just of blood maybe or something like that. The rope, uh, yeah, and they, um, yeah, they drag it back up, mm. and it's just his low, the lower half of his body. At which point, they lock up and they keep building their little tower. They're like, "Well, we're not going to go out there." Uh, then that night, mm. uh, the bugs and the birds get in, and before they can sort of seal off everything and turn off the lights, which is mm. what has been attracting them. Right. Two people die and one person is burned. And I, very, I, very I really like that scene because everything that happens there follows a progression of panicked people doing dumb things. Yes. And then a character that we like at this point is just taken out of the picture by like almost dumb accident. Yes. And that happens. It really has a feeling of of... I think there's a good, the director does a really good job of keeping a sort of modicum of realism. Yes. To really unrealistic to things. Really unrealistic People things. react realistically. No yeah. one's being a superhero. They're no. all just terrified. And I do love that uh, Ollie is like, they're like, can anybody shoot? Because mm-hmm. Amanda carries a gun with her at all times, which makes me think she had a stalker or something. Like, right. you're a school teacher who carries a gun with you at all times? Like, that's something happened to mm. you. Uh, and they're like, okay, great, well, could anybody shoot it? And mm. Ollie is like, I can. And the manager again is like, Ollie, shut up. And he goes, he he, he flicks the gun open and mm. loads it real quick and flicks it closed, and he goes, some target shooting, state champion, right. before. And I'm like, yeah, give him the gun. <laughs> and I love that because he's so unassuming. Well, that's kind of what works really well in the book is that that was my favorite character in the, the, mm-hmm. the book was this guy who just comes up from behind and everyone underestimates him. And he becomes, and like everyone here, and I think that this is a tribute to both the book and the film, and together it's a piece of art, is that I, you really feel like these people have a story yeah. before they got here. Yeah. They don't exist purely to right. run through their paces. Right. This is a slice of their life. This mm-hmm. isn't their whole life. But this is the last slice of their life in, in many, many cases. In many cases, Yes. Uh, so that night completes, and then when they wake up the next morning, David is like, we got to get out of here, because mm-hmm. she's already got a fairly large group, mm-hmm. and she was already calling for blood, Right. and it's going to be our blood that she's calling for, so I need to get my child away from Mrs. Carmody, because mm-hmm. she's basically like, see, it's the Lord, he wants the blood, and we well, have to serve it up to him. At one point... Uh, one of the creatures comes in through the window. Uh, yeah, the, one of the bugs lands on her. Lands on her. And I think what where she survives, where another character does not, yeah. is that in terror, she's perfectly still, so the thing yes. doesn't think twice, uh, doesn't feel the need to sting her. Right. And then just flies away. And Meanwhile, so she, the young lady cashier, right. who's probably a virgin because she had just been thwarted mm-hmm. with a, a guy that she had been interested in and then went to the military. We see that little vignette of them and uh she gets st- stabbed in the neck and then her whole face explodes or like it doesn't explode but it puffs 
Pasta right. real much, real far. Uh, the other another thing that we see is like um, Mother Carvey is in the bathroom and she's praying mm-hmm. out loud, and uh, Amanda goes in and just says, "You know, it's okay to be afraid, and you know, if you need a friend, I'm here." Legitimately trying mm-hmm. to be uh, nice to this woman, mm-hmm. and. Marsha Gay Harden utters the best line of this movie, or any movie maybe, which right. is, if I want a friend like you, I'll just have a little squat and shit one out, which is so rude. Right. And this is <laughs> why... I'm like, you're a woman of God, bitch. What? I feel that this performance is so amazing. What she does with Mother Carmody is that, although she pretends to be in charge of the situation... She's constantly horrified by the things going on around her. And she seems to be as if not more horrified and scared than everyone else. But her protection is to insulate herself by just claiming that she knew what was going to happen next. Yeah. And there's some great cutaways to her just covering her mouth in a horror. She and, is legitimately right. terrified and, and, and I, gasping in terror. And like real terror. Like right. it's not, she's not putting it on. No. I mean, she is. Obviously, she's an actor. But... That character is really it's feeling a that. really sophisticated character because really what that scene, especially with Amanda, that scene shows is that Mother Carmody is still not completely convinced. You know, I'm pray- she's praying, do whatever you want with me, use me as your messenger. And these, but last also, hours. please don't do whatever right. you want with me because this shit is heinous. <laughs> right. So when she has this creature land on her, and it's a simple response that she chooses not to do anything that the creature doesn't. Striker, because she, it's kind of like having a bee land on you, basically. Yeah, yeah. Only the bee is two feet long. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so she's able to, because of her terror, it saves her life, and then she takes this as a sign. Yes. And then from there, she's almost impossible to deal with. Yes, and there are like three more basic inc- like mm-hmm. I- incidents, right? So one, they decide that they need to go to the pharmacy because mm-hmm. this this man is covered in burns, and I'm like, let him kill himself because that was the only part that seemed a little illogical to me. The the pharmacy. The, the, well, it seemed like one of the, the one of the guys who was being heroic. Yes. Um, during the pterodactyl attack, is covered in third-degree burns now. Yes. And we were treated to a really horrible sight of what a burn victim looks like when their skin is splitting. Yes. And swelling. So he is um, he's begging to be killed. He's begging, yes. And, he's like, if you can't heal right, me, which they can't. They can't, because they're not Jesus. Well, yeah, he's but I mean, you need, a, you need a... A special specified burn unit right. for the the but type of damage that he has. It's too late for him, really. We, we can is. tell that, and the conditions yeah. are too primitive. They can't do anything for him. No, they should allow him right. to die with and dignity and not to in do the amount of pain that you have it's a gun. Be. Just put just, me out of it. But yeah, he's not able to go on. But to me, that's the one of the times where it drops it. Where either the movie is trying to depict people who are so genteel at this point, they still can't bring themselves to kill a person who's suffering. Yeah, but then what happens? Yeah. In that, yes. Okay. But so they decide they're going to go to the pharmacy. They're going to get some medicine, mm-hmm. and they're going to see if anybody is over there and trapped and needs help. So they go over there, and there is webs everywhere. It looks like snow, but mm-hmm. it is webs. It's webs. What makes webs, everybody? <laughs> Spoiler alert: spiders. They start grabbing medicine. There's nobody there that they see, and then as they're going to leave, they see somebody attached to the wall. Now, it's a black man. 
Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell if it was Andre Brower's character or if it was supposed to be Andre Brower's character. Uh, it was the military uh, officer. No, because the, the black military officer... Oh, it was a different one. Right. It was like the MP, the, right. the head... That's right. Because his revelation... So there were two black military right. uh, His revelation is... It's, it's our, our fault. fault. Yeah. Now, mind you, he has... His face is covered with syphilitic-looking pustules. His face isn't. And his, his body. His body is. And if and that then all alone the spiders burst out of him. were the problem, then it wouldn't be so bad. But watching these boils burst open with living spiders. Spiders. Yeah. And the spiders. Even the spiders are accelerated here. Yes. Because they have... They have, like, people faces. Anthropomorphic faces. Yeah. Um, and spider faces are terrifying enough. If you blown that up five hundred times, it'd still be fucking terrifying. Right. But they made them worse. They, they gave them these sort of visages that look like skulls. They with kiss antlers. and the spray that they or and the the, the, the web that they that they're making. It's not even the silk because the silk on the people isn't. Uh, it's different. They have like they have like offensive and defensive right. silk or something. Yeah, the offensive and they, silk is pretty nice. And some nasty. of it has. Acid. So two more people are going to die while mm-hmm. they're trying to get away from these giant ass fucking spiders, and some of them are like the size of a cat or mm. a small dog, and some of them are like the size of a fucking cow. Right. No, thank you. I repeat, no, thank you. So they run back and they they let back. Into and this the film store. has like a trigger warning for absolutely every goddamn thing. Which I was like, of. are they going to even let them back into the store? That right. is a fucking legitimate concern. Uh, and they, um, they're like, uh, they're having a little power, um, they're having a little meeting amongst themselves. Like we need to find the other military guys and figure out what the fuck he meant when he said it's our fault. Now, Mother Carmody over here, no, Jim overhears mm-hmm. that. And Jim has gone over to Mother Carmody's side. William Sadler. He's not a, a strong a soft-brained will. man mm-hmm. who will go where the tide takes him. Right. And also, he probably fundamentally knows the same thing that Drayton knows, which mm-hmm. is, if we're not with her, she's going to put us up for sacrifice. That is right. just I also what's think there's happen. an element of, because he's able to, he's pushed into action sometimes by his former teacher, who's Francis Sternhagen's character, who calls him an underachiever. Yes. And you so... You and your siblings both, yes. This guy is, um, he's known around town for being kind of the town... I mean, yeah, he's a man who mm-hmm. who's wearing you know overalls with his name on him or well, coveralls with his name. And on he's him also drinking him. beer before the middle of the afternoon. I'm guessing this you know, is that frankly, guy. Frankly, I would also be drinking beer before well, the middle of the situation. afternoon on this particular day. Um, but with that character, I think there's also an element of religious mania that comes from shame because he is he knows perfectly well that he got the bag boy killed. Yeah. So. Then he goes in, they go into the back looking, because they can't find the the two other military dudes, and they go into the back looking for them, and they, have, they find them hanging. Mm-hmm. They have hung themselves, at which point they look for the third one, Jessup, right? Yeah. And they're like, what did you do? He goes, I don't know, it wasn't me, but my understanding is... They opened up something and something came through, like like a like a portal between dimensions, and there there's a rip, and shit is coming in through it. Right. Uh, and at which point the mob led by Carmody turns on him and stabs him, right, and banishes him. They say that right 
from the store into the mist, which is a death sentence if the fucking giant knife to the gut wasn't, which it probably was. And he is their human sacrifice, and he uh, is taken by a praying mantis-like creature. Right. Yeah. So then there's another restless night, but nobody else comes in. And, and then when they wake up the next morning, David um, is like, we got to go. We're going because they're going to come after us next. That group is growing, which means that group that isn't them is shrinking. And we are going to be the targets right. until they have to turn on themselves, which they will do. But they won't until they have to. It's very much like Survivor. Like, make your alliances and yeah. everything, but at some point, it's going to be one person left standing, so, you know, don't get too fucking comfortable. And um, Ollie has put together five grocery bags. They're going to go to David's car. They're going to run out to the car. Whoever gets there first is going to open all the doors, and then they're going to rush in as quick as they can, and they're going to drive south as far as they can, as far as the gas will take them, and hopefully they get clear of the mist. That's the plan. They get to the check stand where the groceries are supposed to be, and there are no groceries. And, and then we look over, and we see fucking Carmody sitting in a like, like a lawn chair with a knife in her hand, mm-hmm. just languidly just going, what do you think you're going to do? And he, she, he's like, look, we don't want trouble with you. We just want to go. Oh, because she goes, stealing? And I'm like, y'all have been eating for two days, so don't even do that. Like, fuck off. This is an emergency situation. We're not looting. Eat a dick. Uh, And she stands up, and she starts getting everybody sort of hyped up, and she calls for the boy, at which point I'm like, well, now she has to die. Like, You want to, and they, and everybody instantly, nobody in her group is like, a child, we can't do that. No, they're all They all are like, get him, and get the whore too, because, yeah, of course. Of course she's a whore for no Of course she reason. is, because she's a woman. Because she's so pretty. She's she wearing must be slacks, so she must, yes. Trousers She's also make the a stranger whore. too. She there. is the stranger, she's mm-hmm. a new, new to the group. At which point, Ollie pulls out his gun, shoots her once in the abdomen and once in the fucking forehead. And he's just like, and he is taken aback by his actions, but he's right. like, uh, I had to. And that was a good moment for him. And Drayton says, thank you. Mm-hmm. And, and he says, I had to do it. And Drayton says, that's why I'm saying thank you. Like, I know that that was not a thing that you in any way wanted to do. You saved my child's life. And that fucking sucks because now you have to forever know that you killed this woman. But you did not have an option. And I appreciate that it. She wasn't giving us the choice. And they run out. Two of them are killed by spiders, and Bud runs back in the store. So only David, Billy, that's his son, mm-hmm. Dan, which one is Dan? That's Jeffrey DeMunn's character, mm-hmm. uh, Amanda, and Irene, who is Francis Sternhagen, the teacher uh, that you said, all make it to the car. I thought Ollie made it. No, Ollie doesn't make it that far. Ollie doesn't make it. He winds up being attacked by a very large mantis and pulled in pieces. Ollie is torn in half by the praying mantis. That's mm-hmm. right. It's real big and it just comes out of the thing. That's right. And then Myron and Ambrose are killed by spiders. Bud gives up and runs back. And then so only the five of them make it to the car. And they, they do a weird circle around the front of the store. Mm-hmm. 
Which might just be the way that the drive works. Maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And then out. They drive through the mist. They drive to the house and they find the house covered in webs. And his wife is hanging in the picture window that had been destroyed mm. by that. Because she insisted on trying to repair it herself. Well, she, he said that he promised he'd come back with mm-hmm. uh, plastic right. and duct tape to seal it up. But he had gone to the store to get those things. So he did not have them yet. And then he start, He keeps driving south. They're passing vehicles. And at one point, they're pulled over to the side of the road in this gigantic, like a kaiju. Mm. This huge thing with what I would assume looked like a Cthulhu face because it looked like it had tentacles at the front of it. Right. Um, but it was massively big, like a Cloverfield situation, mm. walking by. And it had six feet, six legs. Then when they run out of gas, they basically all decide that death is better than being taken by the creatures. Mm. He had grabbed, all he had to do was not grab that bu- that pistol. Right. He grabbed the pistol and it had four bullets in it. There are five of them. So he, who does he kill? Does Do we even, do we see him do it? I We fast forward. This uh, is where we fast forwarded. Because I, I was like, I know what happens and I don't want to watch it. <laughs> I chickened out at the end of this movie. Um, well, from what I remember... Um, I think his son wakes up just in time to see it happening and gasps, and then we're not seeing the actual shooting. Because my to the guess outside. is he would have done Billy first, right. rather rather than terrifying Billy by having him be last. Yes, but I would think that he would want him to be last mm-hmm. because that's his baby, and he doesn't want to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but he does end up shooting all of them. And then he goes out, he opens the door of the car to just be taken by whatever fucking monstrosity mm-hmm. is going to take him, which is a wild choice. Like, I would, well, well he now there's four to, bodies in the car, so maybe I don't stay in the car. He's trying to kill himself and then realizes that there's no bullets left, because he does do that. Yes, he does. Right. And so he goes out thinking, you know, something's going to come along and take him. And right as he comes out, the mistress sees. Mm-hmm. And... We see the army has arrived. It's closed, whatever is happening. And they are, they've got flamethrowers and they and are taking flamethrowers and, and tanks to everything. Right? And yeah, everything. It looks very much like the same group of people that come in, in once again, in Dreamcatcher right, right. to take care of these alien Yeah, but they're coming in yeah, with an amazing amount of force. Right. Here. And. He sees that several people have been rescued, including the woman that first mm-hmm. left the store, and she's there with both of her kids. Right. And he realizes that his group, which had been driving away from help the entire time, was moments from being rescued. And their deaths were for nothing. Mm-hmm. And he drops to his knees screaming. And he's just screaming on his knees. And that's how and then we go fade to black. Right. But he doesn't stop screaming. Mm-hmm. Like he's just continue, and I'm like, and then he screamed until he died. They definitely trank him, right. right? Like they definitely do that. And then he definitely wakes up and stops screaming long enough to sue fucking everybody. <laughs> and then he goes back to screaming. Like, yeah, it's it's rough. It's uh, it's a really difficult ending, but I I applaud everyone with going with this ending, and because I think that, as I said, I really feel that was the lesson of the movie. When they gave up their humanity and decided to make it more about survival, they didn't get to survive. It's not like there was any advantage done by that. Yeah. 
So in the book, mm-hmm. I'll read you what the what Wikipedia says about the end of the novella. Right. Ollie kills Mrs. Carmody uh, en route to the car. He is bisected by a creature mm-hmm. similar to a lobster or a crab. David, Billy, Amanda, and uh, Hilda Repler, who is Irene Repler in this, reach the car and leave Bridgeton, uh, driving south for hours. After finding refuge for the night, David listens to a radio and through overwhelming static, he possibly hears a single word broadcast, Hartford. I was I would assume connect mm. Connecticut, but I don't I know. Guess, uh, With that one short of hope, he prepares to drive on into an uncertain future. So it very much feels like a, a well, quiet place. He even or says like at the that. end of the book that this is one of those open endings because he's narrating it as a person who went through the experience, and this is a testament that he's leaving behind for whoever. Right. This is as far um, as we've gotten as of right it, now. I and think it did remind me of, and I, he might have referenced it because it's been such a long time. Uh, to Alfred Hitchcock, the end of his film, The Birds, where the final shot that you get is this very ambiguous driving off into, towards San Francisco. Right. With the birds everywhere in sight, and uh, they're apparently... And you're hoping that you'll find a break in the right. break in it. Yeah. Well, the birds don't attack them because they're no longer a threat. So they're driving away, just the, 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 you know, the four main characters. And even then, there was an attempt to film... The final shot was supposed to be amazing. I've seen... Uh, issue uh, rather pre-production art from the birds mm-hmm. was going to be the Golden Gate Bridge covered in birds from top to bottom. Oh yeah, that would be amazing. And I've seen the and pre-production sketches and Hitchcock sort of said no, he didn't because the, the last shot was supposed to, oh the world's ended basically. And I think with The Mist, you get the sense that this is not local, this is happening everywhere. We've just but there might be a group of survivors in Hartford. Yeah. The ending for this film is so Old Testament that it's... It's, it's, it's it a reminded rough watch, me, man. Uh, and if I think um, if I'd seen it in theaters, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know how I would feel. Because like, like Dawn of the Dead. Right. You like that movie all the way up until credits roll, right? Right, the remake, yeah. Yes, yes, that's what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Wherein all of the people we thought survived... Are killed, are but killed. also killed in such an illogical way. Okay. Um... And the I listened to the director's cut years later when I stopped being mad at the film, and yeah. he said, yes, absolutely, this was the producers insisting, but we have to have it end this way. Which is a wild right. thing, because now producers would never be like, kill all those characters, because they want to be able to right. make a sequel. Like, uh, that would and never the, happen today. In this one, he's, he was even mocking the choices they made. It's like, you know, they get in a boat, and there's an island. Where's this island located? Why are there zombies? And that was my complaint. Why are there zombies on the island? But, right. How did how did right, they, they swam? beat them here? Right. Yes. Um, that makes me want to watch Twenty Eight Days. Right. Later again. Which Twenty Eight Days Later and Twenty Eight Weeks Later yeah. are both very well thought out. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's done and very And I haven't logically. watched them in a long, long time. But yeah, the I first ten minutes it. of Twenty Eight Days Later or the opening scene is probably the best pure horror scene I've seen in a film. Twenty Eight Weeks. Twenty Eight Weeks. I'm sorry. Twenty Eight Weeks. Twenty Eight Days. The opening of that. Twenty Eight Days feels very much like the beginning of Walking Dead, right? Which, like both of which lifted the opening scene from Day of the Triffids. Oh, okay, right, 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 right. Um, which was embarrassing because it is direct. You know, wake up in a hospital. Yeah. You have bandages on your eyes. You can't see what's going on. Um, so, but overall, for this film, how do you feel? I like watching this movie. Uh-huh. I like the effects are fucking cool. Now, mind you, I've designed with uh, partly by Greg Nicotero and yes. another person who was involved in this that surprises me and then doesn't. More walking was stuff. Bernie Wrightson. I don't know who that is. Bernie Wrightson, the comic book artist who, with Stephen King, designed um, Cycle of the Werewolf. 
okay, I'm okay, the original yes, calendar and him. book. And he's an amazing artist. He does horror subjects. Ooh, yeah. In an astounding way, his is an absolute master of line drawing. Is he doing pen and ink? Yeah. It's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And so he would do splash pages for comic books and things like that when I was a kid. I see one of these, and I know how big it actually is, Uh, and all the hatch marking. I'm just like... Oh, no. He's astounding. How do you have... I don't have the patience for it. And he was hugely influential, especially in horror magazines in the 70s when I grew up with him. And so he's constantly referenced by Stephen King and uh, Guillermo del Toro and others. As just like not only a master of this medium, of which obviously when you look at any of his work, he is astounding. Yeah, and he, but also like he is directly referenced. I mean, he is a direct reference for, I'm going to say 90% of the Walking Dead zombies. Like the way that they look is what he is doing. Influential the same way that, in, in a way, to a lesser degree, but in a way like Harryhausen is, where if you've never seen a Harryhausen movie, you're going to see the effects of Harryhausen everywhere. Yeah, you'd be like, he's derivative. No, right. y'all know. He, everyone is copying right. him. Everyone is copying him. And so you're looking at, uh, you know, Spy Kids, or you're watching some other film, and, or even this movie, and you'll catch, oh, that's a reference to something. And yes, you're referring back to Harryhausen because one person just had this explosion of talent and drew from all this other stuff. And Bernie Wrightson's one of those guys. He drew who, some alien things that look like... Yeah. Amazing stuff. No, I mean, like, looks like alien comics. Mm-hmm. So it's taking uh, Giger's designs, but yeah. doing them in his style. Really interesting. He was supposed to, one he of the great pities, he was supposed to work with Guillermo del Toro in an adaptation of Frankenstein. Yes, because he did a comic. Yeah, and that was so influential again. That yeah, to a generation of horror people, he was amazing, and he is amazing. He is so amazing. Yeah, th- we have two artists to check out now. Yes, indeed. I will Struzan put them in the show notes. I will put links to their uh, maybe wikis or something. Yeah, uh, where you can get more information. See, uh, another thing that I would point out for this film too. I kind of wish we had Alan on this episode. Yeah, that would be really fun because this is a lot of his heroes. He's listed both Bernie Wrightson and Drew Struzan as is personal heroes. Right. Um, aside from this, there's another neat little note. Uh, the, the creature the, that's referred to as the behemoth in the yes. script, which was envisioned as being a walking ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, so did similarly sort of, because you right. had said they're not really uh, right. in danger from him unless he smushes them. Right. And I'm like, unless things call, fall off of him, which they've been doing right. in kaiju movies, they didn't. Yeah. Cloverfield, there were those like Ticks that were coming off well, of this the thing. the first scene in the... the and the new Godzilla, right. the well, m- in, Mutos. M- in 1985, I think, when they brought Godzilla back after a hiatus, the opening scene for that film is a really creepy scene of a man on a ghost ship, a relic ship, and there's giant sea lice because Godzilla being radioactive. And right. so the sea lice are... And I remember that even though we're people love... You they know, were like pill bugs. I don't know what with really nasty like, teeth. There them. is oh right because they got a bite. The Bay is a horror film about sea lice. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, and they then are I know horrible exactly looking what they things. Mean. They look yes. like trilobites with teeth. Yes. Um, and I remember the opening scenes of that film. I think it, here it was released as Godzilla 1985 or something. And the opening scene with the 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 man on the abandoned ship and he's being stalked by the sea lice is actually really creepy. Um, but 
Yeah, they're going to skitter in a way that is unpleasant. Not good. <laughs> yeah. But this uh, this particular monster and, and the connection to Godzilla, which is funny because that was explicit in the Stephen King novella, um, is that the, this film is produced by Richard Saperstein. And that was a, like, I, I had a fit of giggles at the end of the movie because his father was Henry Saperstein, who released Godzilla. Oh, right. Rodan, yes. Mothra, to, from, a, you know, he bought the, the rights to distribute them in the United States. Right. As a matter of fact, I believe it's him, the reason why we call it Godzilla instead of Gojira. I um, like Gojira. I like Gojira better. But the, yeah, he's the one who translated the name from, that's my understanding of it. So, yeah, it's a really, there's a lot of fun stuff in this movie. I, um, I know that the ending is not for everybody. And it reminds me in some ways of a film like Witchfinder General where at the very end one of our main characters goes mad and the final frame is just a close-up of her screaming without stopping. Yeah. And it's very similar to this. Every performance in this movie is keyed up and top-notch. Yeah. There are no weak performances in this movie, even the bit parts. Yeah. No, And everyone, Andre Brower, Melissa Gay Harden in particular... But Thomas Jane doesn't get enough praise for the work he does, especially in that final scene. Yeah. Because he's playing a guy who's just lost the thread. You can practically watch him grasping at his sanity and kind of losing it between his fingers. It's an amazing scene to watch. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that's what we want to say on The Mist. Mm -hmm. Go watch it, but have a drink first, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yes, during... Uh, so next week, we're going to watch a movie called Dolan's Cadillac. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have never seen it. I have never even heard of it. It's got Christian Slater in it. That's okay. what I'll tell you. Uh, and it was, I was going to say made for TV, but I am wrong. It came out in 2009, Dolan's mm-hmm. Cadillac. I believe that this is a thing that we are going to be watching on YouTube, but okay. I think that there are good versions of it on there. Unlike Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Correct. Nothing can improve that. <laughs> Correct. In the meantime, do you have anything you want to recommend. I can't see that I have something to recommend right now because it was, there was actually not a too great a period between our recording times. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think I have come to think of it. I think uh, we haven't had much of a chance between sessions here. Do you have something you want to recommend? I do. Okay, good. This episode drops on July 2nd, 2020. Mm-hmm. I recommend that everyone, if you don't have Disney Plus, get a free trial and watch this weekend Hamilton. Oh, okay. Because it hits Disney Plus tomorrow at the time of your listening. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's already there if you don't listen right when this drops. Uh, I'm so excited that I get to watch. I've seen it. I saw I've the, never seen I it, saw no. the touring show when it came to San Francisco. It was spectacular. I can't wait to watch it again 400,000 more times. So, Mm. it's so good. It's everyone. I can't think of anybody who I'd be like, nah, probably won't like it. Watch this thing. You, it is astounding. It is, y'all, y'all know it's a cultural phenomenon, right? Like, it's, Mm. (laughs) this isn't, this isn't new information, but it's available there, uh, at the very least, sign up for Disney Plus for one month if you can. Free, like I said, free trial it. Mm-hmm. I believe you. if you don't have it, you can get like seven days of free trial. Mm-hmm. If you know me personally, holler because I will come to your house and sign into my Disney Plus account and we will watch it together. Like, uh, I'll sit six feet away from you with a mask on your couch. I don't care. I, it is so good. It is so good. And I, you, I need you to watch it. So, 
That is my recommendation. Okay. Lin-Manuel Miranda does not need my help, but here we are. Uh, Once again, next week, Dolan's Cadillac is what we are watching. That's D-O-L-A-N apostrophe S, Cadillac like the vehicle from 2009. If you see a cheesy looking cover that looks like, uh, that has, I believe, Christian Slater in sunglasses holding a gun, you found the right thing. I hope it's good. I've heard good things about Christian Slater as a person, so... I, Mr. Robot was a big uh, mm. surprise for me, um, and how good he is in that. I, uh, I, I really like his young stuff. I'll watch Cuffs right now. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I, yes, fine with me. And then it's also got Wes Bentley, Christian Slater, mostly those two. Uh, if you have questions or comments or concerns, or you want to tell me how right I am about Hamilton, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com or tweet at us at latecomerspod. You can find us on Facebook, Latecomers Podcast. Search for it in the search bar. And until next time, I remind you to take your medicine and we remind you better, better late, late than, than never. never.